Hey everybody, it's Brock Falk, and I want to thank you for listening to this message from Heritage Church of Christ. We would be thrilled to share more content like this with you and make it easy for you to share it with others. You can find more messages like this on our podcast, or you can download our smartphone app by searching for Heritage Church of Christ in your app store. But most importantly, I hope this message encourages you to take a next step toward a thriving relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. might find, find it suitable to join us in this journey, to be a part of this pursuit together with us as we try together to grow in discipleship with Jesus. And for the last couple of weeks here at Heritage, the last few weeks during this summer, we've been working our way through a series of sermons that I've called Flannel Graph Favorites. And every week when I say that from the stage, I remind myself that the word flannel graph may be a foreign concept to some people. That's not a term that everybody who's listening is going to be familiar with. And so most weeks I've been bringing this demo model up here. It really is just kind of a giant bulletin board with felt wrapped around it. But for many of us who grew up in Sunday school, the flannel graph was like the doorway to the ancient world. Because our Sunday school teachers used these stick-on characters on the flannel graph board and they moved them around and used them to tell the story and to introduce us to the epic narrative of the Bible. And the reason for the title of this series, the reason for the name of these lessons is that we're taking a look at some of those stories from the Bible that many of us got the opportunity to learn as children some of the stories that our children are learning down the hall right now, but they're stories that deserve a re-examination as adults. That's partly because, as one scripture writer has said, the word of God is alive and active. God's word meets us where we are. It addresses our hearts and our thoughts and our attitudes in whatever stage of life and whatever stage of faith we're in. And so we're, we do well to be students of the Bible throughout our lives because we'll learn something different every time we engage with the scripture. But it's also true that the Bible was not written for a juvenile audience. The Bible's complicated. The Bible is graphic. The Bible is violent at times, which means that the contents of the Bible might be too scary and unsettling for kids to read. And that doesn't mean that kids can't benefit from studying the Bible, but Bible study for children requires some adult guidance. It's like parental guidance suggested, you know, which is exactly what the Sunday school teachers have been doing for all these years. I can't tell you how grateful I am. I can't tell you how thankful I am to my Sunday school teachers 30, 40 years ago who censored and sanitized the Bible stories that they were teaching to me in order to protect me from having a lot of nightmares when I went home. But these stories, these stories that they were introducing me to, that they were giving me the Cliff's Notes versions of, these stories were included in our Bibles for a reason. And if our only knowledge of these stories comes from a distant past reading, we miss out on some of the important contributions that these stories have to make to our still maturing faith. 
And so today I want to invite you to join me in looking at a really obscure story that might be more familiar to some of you than to others, depending on what kind of church context or if you grew up in a church context at all. This story is a story about two brothers named Nadab and Abihu, and it's found in the Old Testament book of Leviticus. If you've got a Bible with you, I'd be thrilled for you to join us in Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus is the third book in the Old Testament portion of your Bible. And Leviticus, let me tell you, Leviticus has got some complexity issues. If you just try to read Leviticus from beginning to end, this book can be really cumbersome. In fact, lots and lots of people have run out of the willpower to complete a read through the Bible program when they found themselves bogged down in Leviticus. Like Leviticus is where read through the Bible programs go to die, you know? But if you learn the context of Leviticus, if you figure out and start to recognize the pattern and the place in history and learn the context of this book, you begin to realize this book's dramatic importance in God's big redemption story. You've got to understand a few big Bible themes first. You have to understand, one, that sin or unholiness creates a separation between God and humanity. You need to understand that's a big theme throughout all the scripture you've got to get a grasp on. But you also have to understand that God doesn't like the separation and God wants to do something about it. And so God made a promise to Abraham to bless all the peoples of the earth through Abraham's descendants. In fact, generations after Abraham lived, God rescued Abraham's many descendants from slavery in Egypt and invited them into a covenant relationship. This stuff happens in the previous book, the book of Exodus. And God's people were invited to live lives of distinction in obedience to God's instructions. And God was going to make them a living example to the rest of the world, to all of the nations of the world who were going to come to believe in the God of Abraham. The only trouble with this plan was that the people of Israel were lousy at keeping their word, lousy at keeping up their part of the obedience covenant with God. And so the book right before Leviticus, the book of Exodus, it ends with this predicament where God has instructed the people to build this sacred tent called a tabernacle where God's presence was going to dwell among the people. But because of the people's sinfulness, because of their continued disobedience, nobody was allowed to go inside the tent once it was built. Nobody's even allowed to enter the place where God's presence was manifesting itself. They simply weren't qualified to do so. And the book of Leviticus reveals God's solution for that predicament. That's what Leviticus is about. Leviticus explains the system of sacrifices and rituals that the Israelite people were going to follow in order to purify themselves for life in God's presence. And it's a system that includes a very specific set of instructions, particularly for the religious leaders, the priests of Israel. The priests were intended to be the mediators between God and humanity. The priests were responsible for carrying out ritual sacrifices and for protecting the sanctity of the tabernacle. And all of that setup, all of that initiation, all of that preparation brings us to the story of Nadab and Abihu, which I've got to say is one of the oddest stories in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is full of odd stories. 
In fact, this particular incident, these few verses probably don't qualify as a flannel graph favorite. I don't have flannel graph characters to show you of Nadab and Abihu. Frankly, they just didn't last long enough. This is not a flannel graph favorite, and most of our kids probably haven't heard this story, but it's inside a bigger story that we do tell. Last week, we talked about the story of the Hebrew midwives who helped to save the babies who were sentenced to death by Pharaoh, and it was told within the context of the story of Moses' birth, and this story is similar. It might have been skipped over while we were telling our kids the bigger story about the building and the development of the tabernacle, but some of us heard this story later. Some of us heard this story as adults, the story of Nadab and Abihu. Some of us heard this story and it became a popular point to insert in arguments about church doctrine. We'll talk about that in a bit. But first, let's find out together what this story is about. In, it's in Leviticus chapter 10, but you need to know that Leviticus 8 and 9 is where we're reading about a multi-step, seven-day process for these new priests of Israel to be ordained into their new position. It's a long process, and it involves ceremonial washing and special symbolic uniforms followed by a series of meticulous animal sacrifices and being anointed with oil and all of this complicated stuff. And there's five priests who are going through this process together in Leviticus 8 and 9. Aaron, who was the brother of Moses, he's the one, and then his four sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar, these five men, they're receiving the great honor and the responsibility and the calling to be priests who are going to serve God's people. And at the end of this seven-day process, this prolonged ordination process, the text says in chapter 9 that the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and they fell face down on the ground. I mean, this is a wonderful moment in Israel light history. But then in the very next verse, chapter 10, verse one, we read about an incident with Aaron's two oldest sons, Nadab and Abihu, who are these newly ordained priests of Israel. And they violated a boundary with God and it cost them dearly. And the story goes like this. It says, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu took their censers. These are like little metal jars that are held on chains and they, can, they hold hot coals, ashes and incense. They took their censers, they put fire in them and added incense and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. And so, Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, the father of the two men who had just passed away, This is what the Lord spoke of when he said, Among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honored. And Aaron remained silent. Now you can probably imagine why this is not a portion of the story that we tell to the children, right? 
I mean, you get that. The mental image of this event, I don't know if you've seen the old Indiana Jones movies, you know, but if you remember that scene at the end with the Ark of the Covenant and people's faces melting and stuff, it's kind of like that. You know, the mental image of this event would be hard for children to comprehend. But for years, for years now, this story has been told in churches as a cautionary tale. You know what a cautionary tale is, right? You remember when you took driver's ed and they showed you movies of all of these extremely catastrophic car wrecks and mangled bodies and people who had, you know, who had totally lost control and wasn't, weren't paying attention. That's a cautionary tale. A cautionary tale is when your mom told you that if you kept crossing your eyes like that, they were going to get stuck. You know, that's a cautionary tale. And, ch- and in church for decades, this story has been used as a cautionary tale and, and, and Christians have talked about Nahum and Abihu's death as if it was warning us of something very specific. The only trouble is the text, and I've read just about all of it to you in that particular episode, the text is unfortunately vague about what Nadab and Abihu did wrong. The text makes mention of Nadab and Abihu's unauthorized fire Some of you will recall another translation, or maybe your Bible says, strange fire. How many of you have heard that before? There's a few of you, I know. But nobody knows what that's talking about. Nobody knows for sure what that's referring to. The Bible doesn't give us any more detail than that about it, and so it's left up to subjective interpretation. What could Nadab and Abihu have done? I mean, did they have like, black cats, fireworks or something in their sensors? Like what, the, what was that about? But the way I've always heard it referred to in church was as a warning against doing anything new during the worship service. This is how it's been used. Oh, you want the worshipers to sit on chairs instead of pews? Oh, you want to display the song lyrics on an overhead projector? You want to dim the overhead lights during the service? Well, that all sounds like strange fire to me. And that's the kind of speculation that has turned these three little verses into a paralyzing cautionary tale in the church. And I want to tell you, I get it. I understand the impulse I understand the instinct to be nervous about some innovation because the innovation might be something that God doesn't like. And this story tells us, this story seems to say that you really don't want to do something that God doesn't like. You really don't want to offend God. So maybe you'd better stay on the safe side and just try to do things in church the way we've always done things in church. In case you're not familiar with church history, I can tell you that time and time and time again, Christian people have parted ways with each other, broken fellowship with one another because they couldn't agree on what the safe and appropriate forms of worship looked like. And I can't tell you anything new today about what Nadab and Abihu's strange and unauthorized fire was. Anything I would say about what the, what the strange fire is referring to, anything I would say would be a guess. 
But what I can tell you is that if we read this story in its broader context, like good Bible students, if we pay attention to who these characters are and what they know and what they've been through, if we listen in to the conversations that are recorded after Nadab and Abihu's demise, if we pay attention to how God responds to other Bible characters who don't seem to follow instructions perfectly, then I think, then we might get a little bit closer to understanding not only how Nadab and Abihu's offense wasn't just a mistake or an innovation, but we might get a little bit closer to figuring out why this story was included in our Bibles in the first place. We might figure out a little bit more about what we're supposed to learn about God in this story. You see, there really are a lot of theories that have been suggested about what Nadab and Abihu did wrong. And if their offense was just an innocent act of mistake, if it was just an innocent act of mistakenly bringing fire from the wrong source, or if it was just accidentally using incense of the wrong variety, if it truly was just an innocent mistake, then we better be serious about precision. We'd better be serious about accuracy so that we don't mistakenly incur God's wrath too. But I want to show you why I think we've misread this passage in the past. I want to show you why I think we've misread this passage and why I don't believe that this is meant to be a cautionary tale that strikes fear in our hearts. I want to begin by pointing out a few context clues that I believe give us more insight into what Nadab and Abihu may have been guilty of doing. The first one has to do with unauthorized entry into the most holy portion of the tabernacle. If you read all the extensive instructions about the tabernacle in Exodus and Leviticus, you'll read that the tabernacle was designed and God was very clear that there was to be a particular zone called the most holy place or the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant was to reside and where the presence of God was to be seated. Not every place in the tabernacle was of equal holiness or importance. There was one spot that was more holy and set apart than others. This was an area that was off limits except for very specific occasions when only one one person, only the high priest could enter and only after having made very specific preparations. And I'm convinced that when Leviticus chapter 10 verse 1 says that Nadab and Abihu offered their unauthorized or strange fire before the Lord, it probably means that they were entering the most holy place where they knew they weren't supposed to be. They were going into a part of the, the tabernacle that was set aside. And I think that's supported by what we read a few chapters later in Leviticus 16, verses 1 and 2, where it says, The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark or else he will die. And I think God reminded Aaron of this boundary in the context of Nadab and Abihu's death because it was an aspect of what they had done wrong. Neither Nadab or Abihu was the high priest, nor was it the right time nor were they ceremonially prepared to go into that portion of the tabernacle that was the most holy place. They were treat, treating that very flippantly. But that's not all. 
Because if you continue reading in chapter 10, after Nadab and Abihu passed away, Moses calls in two of their cousins and says, would you guys come in and deal with these corpses? Take them out of here, you know? And they take the bodies out, but he tells Aaron and the two other priests, these are the brothers of the guys who had just died, the father and the brothers. He tells Aaron and Eleazar and Ithamar, he says, you must continue your priestly duty. We're in the middle of something very important right here. And then just moments after the bodies have been removed, Moses gives those three men this warning. This is just five or six verses after Nadab and Abihu passed away. And Moses says to these three men, you and your sons are not to drink wine or other fermented drink whenever you go into the tent of meeting or you will die. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come so that you can distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean, and so that you can teach the Israelites all the decrees that the Lord has given them through Moses. I believe the context and the timing of this warning suggests that Nadab and Abihu may have been intoxicated when they were performing their priestly duties. And their judgment was impaired and their senses were dulled and they were in no condition to carry out the roles that had been assigned to them. And I think as a result of their incapacitation, they acted with irreverence to God's instructions. And they flippantly dismissed the protocols and the procedures of their jobs. And I think when you look at all of those context clues, it makes it much more likely that Nadab and Abihu were guilty of much more than just a simple mistake or an innocent accident. I think they chose to ignore God's boundaries. I think they chose to ignore the gravity of the tasks that they were performing. But there's one more piece of information, and this is where I really want to get you to lean in. There's one more piece of information I think is instructive for us when we read it in context with Nadab and Abihu's story, and it's the story that comes next, the very next few verses in the same chapter. It's the story about Aaron's remaining sons, Eleazar and Ithamar. You see, the remainder of Leviticus chapter 10 involves Moses giving instructions to Aaron and his remaining sons about how they were to proceed with the next steps in the sacrifices that they were in the middle of carrying out. And in the course of their conversation, Moses discovers that Eleazar and Ithamar have already committed an error. They've already messed up. They've already burned up a portion of one of the offerings that they were supposed to eat together, and there's no going back from that. And the text says that Moses became angry with them because of their error. And if you're reading this passage, if you're reading through Leviticus 10 and you know what just happened to the two older brothers, and then you see that the two younger brothers have now made a mistake in their worship too, you could start worrying, man, Aaron's about to lose his other two sons. This is getting terrible. This is getting serious. And after all, they got worship wrong. They failed to carry out God's instructions with precision. But what we see in the story, what we see happen here, is that Aaron explains to Moses why they deliberately chose to change course. Leviticus 10, 19, Aaron replied to Moses. Moses is angry at this point. And Aaron replies and says, today they sacrificed their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord but such things as this have happened to me. He's reminding Aaron, reminding Moses, I just lost my two older sons. 
And he, he asks this rhetorical question. He says, would the Lord have been pleased if I had eaten the sin offering today? Aaron explains that given everything that's just happened, he and his sons just didn't think it would be appropriate for them to be sitting around eating this rich meat, this meal, this ceremonial feast. They just didn't think that would be appropriate today. <coughs> and they weren't trying to ignore God. And they weren't trying to dishonor God. What they were trying to do was to be obedient in the moment. They were trying to be obedient in the situation that they found themselves in. They were trying to ask themselves, what would God want us to do right now? We don't have instructions for this. What would God want? And verse 20 says, when Moses heard Aaron's explanation and his rhetorical question, Moses was satisfied. Moses dropped the subject. And with that, the chapter comes to an end and Eleazar and Ithamar don't get punished and they don't get penalized. And the only explanation that seems to make sense to explain the difference between Nadab and Abihu's story who were killed when they got their worship wrong and Eleazar and Ithamar's story who were not only given a pass, but they were blessed in the aftermath of getting worship wrong, the only explanation that seems to make sense is that Eleazar and Ithamar were trying their dead level best to do what they thought God would want. Even if they got it wrong, they were trying to do what they thought God would want. You know, it's always one of the challenges of Bible study to try to avoid that tendency to let one mysterious passage or one mysterious verse outweigh the larger prevailing themes and message of the scripture. And I included this passage in our summer series because the Nadab and Abihu story is pretty well known among adults who have been in church for a while. But the Eleazar and Ithamar story is less familiar and I think there's a reason for that. I think the reason that Christians have tended to gravitate toward the Nadab and Abihu story in the past is because that story caters to our desire to define exactly where the boundaries are. That story, it gives us a confident feeling like we know we're getting things right if it looks the way it used to look. And it's still true that the way we worship matters. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul in particular has some important things to say about worshiping in a decent and orderly manner. And when it comes to partaking of the communion or the Lord's Supper, which we're gonna do together here in just a few minutes, Paul says rather plainly that whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. And so many of us have read that passage so many dozens or hundreds or even thousands of times and we've thought to ourselves, boy, I've got to be really stoic and serious about this. I've got to eat this bread and drink this cup in a worthy manner. But if we were to read that passage in context, what we would find, what we would find is that eating and drinking 
The Lord's Supper in a worthy manner has nothing to do with the form of worship and it has everything to do with the fellowship that we participate in while we do it. It has everything to do with our connection with other people. It has everything to do with remembering to wait for somebody else and putting others first and making sure that others have enough. It has everything to do with the connections around us and not the size of the cup or the number of cups or the type of tray it's served on or the day of the week or any of those other things. The larger prevailing message of Scripture is that what God is really interested in is more about the heart. That God's more interested in our heart and an attitude of reverence. God desires humility and devotion. And as we read further in scripture, we discover that God is more interested in our posture for worship than in our pattern for worship. And when I say that, I'm not talking about sitting up straight. I'm not talking about being able to balance a book on your head. Not that kind of posture. God's more interested in our heart posture, our spiritual posture. And this has been the way God has always interacted with his people. You see, the theme of scripture that we've got to wrap our minds around The theme of scripture that's so hard for us sometimes to believe, but that's so critical for us to take a hold of deep down in our hearts is that God wants to be close to us. God is not looking for a reason, not looking for an excuse to try to get rid of us or to push us away. God is not looking for some opportunity to say, nope, you messed up right there. God is looking for every opportunity to draw us close. God's more interested in our posture for worship than he is in our pattern for worship. If you were to go back and think about the story of those two younger brothers of Aaron, Eleazar and Ithamar, you would recognize that in spite of their mistake in executing the worship procedures, their hearts were trying to do what God would have them do. And because of that, They were blessed. If you were to look in other places in the Old Testament, you would find the testimony of people like King David, who in the middle of the worst days of his life, recognizing his ultimate betrayal of God, he wrote these words. He said, God, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings, which says something about our worship here. He says, my sacrifice, O God, is a broken heart. A broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. He says, a heart that's coming to you in humility and honesty and reverence and repentance, a heart that's coming to you with contrition, doing its best to try to do what you would have it do, that heart, oh God, you will not turn away. David said, I've gotten to know you that well. I've come to understand you that well, God, to understand that all of the sacrifices, that's not really what you're after. All of the burnt offerings, that's not what really brings you pleasure. But what brings you pleasure is a heart that says, God, I need you. And I don't know all the answers, but I know you do. David says, that's what God is looking for. 
And then, generations later, after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, after this atoning sacrifice made on our behalf as a substitution and an example and a sacrifice for us, after all of that, one of Jesus' disciples wrote these words. Hebrews chapter 4 said, Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what it would take to be walking toward the most holy place without shivering and stammering and panicking? There could only be one way that that would be possible. There's only one way it could be possible for you to approach the most holy place with confidence, and that's if you've been invited right? The only way is if you have been invited. And the entire book of Hebrews, where this verse is found, the entire book of Hebrews is explaining the reality of your invitation. Let us approach the throne of grace, God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. There's a switch that we have to flip in our spiritual mind. There's a switch that must be flipped somewhere along the spiritual journey where you get to the point where you start assuming that God is angry with you. And you get to the point where you start realizing that God is inviting you into something bigger. That God is inviting you into relationship that God is not trying to trick you. God is not trying to catch you. God is not a gotcha God. God is a loving God. And you've been invited to approach God's throne of grace with a confidence that comes from your faith in Jesus Christ, knowing that God's default posture, God's default decision, God's default desire is to give you mercy and grace, especially in your time of need. And so if you read the story of Nadab and Abihu, don't read it all alone. Don't read it on its own. Keep reading. And when you get to the story of Eleazar and Ithamar, you'll find something about the character of God that all these centuries later could change your life when you figure out that you are being invited.